that's it. Summer's over. We hope you enjoyed it whenever it happened. Time to get hold of your new pencil cases and your ill-fitting uniforms that you can grow into. Schools are returning. It's back to business as usual, supposedly, and it's start your week with me, Andrew Harrison, and our regular panellist, Ros Taylor. Hi, Ros. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I got back from Cornwall at the weekend, which was very sunny and nice. Okay, right. Yeah, rub it in, why don't you? Let's start with schools then, because it's it's too depressing to start with Afghanistan. Schools are returning. Uh, we're still not clear what that's going to mean for COVID. The government advisor Sage still can't say whether schools drive transmission or they just reflect the spread of the virus locally. You're on the LSE COVID blog. What, what are you hearing from your sources about what the return to school is going to mean? The return to school is going to mean that lots of kids catch COVID. Now, this is a very difficult one, and a lot of people feel very strongly about it, particularly uh, those who are concerned about long COVID, and also worried about what, if anything, the long-term, as in super long-term, decades perhaps in the future, effects of COVID might be. But we have a situation now where the JCVI has decided not, for the moment, to vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds. At the moment, it's just 16 and over, 16 years and over who are being vaccinated. Now, they, they are still talking about it. It may well be that they will recommend in a few, in a couple of weeks or so that 12 to 15 year olds are vaccinated. But at the moment, they haven't. And the reason they haven't is that the risk to children of COVID is not sufficiently high that you're vaccinating them for their own sake. You're vaccinating them for the sake of the rest of the population to try and stop COVID circulating in the wider population. And this makes it a very difficult, you know, not even cost benefit, but but an analysis of what you should do and whether you should vaccinate kids. But the consequence of that is, of course, that in schools, you're not going to be able to stop it spreading. It's going to be, given the infectiousness of the Delta variant, it's going to be impossible to stop it spreading. And logically, therefore, what you actually want to happen is for most kids to catch it. Now, this is kind of taboo to say so, but it is a fact that you need kids to catch it in, or, in order to gain that herd immunity if you're not going to vaccinate them. Otherwise, we're going to have this drawn out even longer than it is already. Now, that is not what a lot of people want to hear. They are very worried about long COVID. They are worried about their kids catching COVID. They can't, you know, they understandably, they can't understand a situation where only a couple of months ago, less than a month ago, in fact, we were isolating whole classes on the basis that one kid had COVID. And as of the schools going back, that isn't going to happen anymore. Uh, there isn't going to be any compulsory self-isolation for people in contact with a COVID case if they're under 18. So it's a really difficult thing. And I don't think the government is being honest about what the implications of this are. There's no point really in talking about mitigation, because if you're going to pursue this strategy of not vaccinating kids, then there is no point in mitigation. It's going to spread, given that it's endemic in the wider community. So what do we know about increases in the virus after previous returns to school? You're often in a much less widely vaccinated environment. I mean, we had the infamous one-day return in, in March before the, the spring spike. Yeah, what we generally know is that uh, for the first couple of months after school's going back after a lockdown, things are great because the virus isn't spreading widely in the wider community. Once it starts doing that, it goes into schools. And you know, with the Delta variant, obviously, that process is potentially going to be accelerated. So there is no doubt that it is going to spread widely. We just don't know as well how many kids already have immunity because they've already had it. Plenty of kids have COVID without knowing it. And we don't know what the level of immunity is in that population. 
Well, one of the arguments for not vaccinating kids, because the NHS was, it, it, the, the kind of pitch was rolled at the end of last week, wasn't it? They're preparing to roll out the vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds. Plans are going to be out at four o'clock on Friday. NHS trust are instructed they had to have their act together. And now it, it's not happening. One of the arguments uh, against it is that children don't often exper- experience serious COVID. There's sort of talk about the side effects that they may suffer from the vaccine. Is there evidence of that? There are occasional very, very rare side effects where someone dies or is seriously ill as a result of a COVID vaccine. And that's why the decision is so difficult, because it is the balance is between the extremely rare recurrence of a child dying of COVID. And remember that vulnerable 12 to 15 year olds have got the right to be vaccinated. Those are the ones most at risk. So the balance is between the extremely rare chance of someone, a child dying of COVID and the extremely rare chance of someone dying as a result of a vaccine side effect. And that's a really hard thing to weigh up. And that's why I think we're seeing indecision, shall we say, on the part of the JCVI, of the committee that decides who gets vaccinations and when. How how do you expect this to play out over the next couple of weeks then? Because we don't have a long-term government and we don't really have a long-term thinking in the public. If kids start going back to school and there is a a noticeable increase in cases, what have we seen in the past in the way that uh, public opinion has moved and how do you think it's likely to move this time? There are going to be a percentage of people who are sufficiently worried about COVID, understandably, given the the incredible efforts we put in to contain it, that they take their kids out of school and they keep them at home or they'll say just don't make them go to school, which amounts to the same thing from the kids' point of view. And that is bad, given the amount of schooling that they have already lost. We really don't want that to happen. But especially in some uh, ethnic minority communities, there are special concerns about COVID, which we really ought to be trying to address. And we're not. My worry is that people will start pulling their kids out of school, regardless of the fact that they don't formally have to self-isolate, and that more of the most vulnerable and the ones who need it most will lose more education. You mentioned uh, to me over the weekend misinformation about a new so-called Boardmasters variant of COVID supposedly generated at the Boardmasters Surf and Music Festival in Newquay a couple of weeks ago. There were around 5,000 new cases after an event attended by 53,000 people. What's happening there and, and in what respect is it misinformation? So Boardmasters was a big festival of, I believe, I, I don't go to these kind of things, but I believe it was a surfing of young people enjoying themselves. I and can they were doing totally like see you catching an ollie or whatever surfers call it. Is that skateboarding, is it? I can totally see you doing that in your in your surf shorts. Well, it sounds so you. I understand the, the young people concerned were indulging in risky behaviour, which involved <laughs> putting in tents and smoking drugs, which I believe is known as hot boxing, and which is frankly an ideal way to catch COVID. And, um, <laughs> and of course, not all of them will have behaved like that. Uh, caveat but a lot of them have caught covid and there were many you know thousands of cases associated with this festival that's exactly what you would expect it's not surprising there were reports the weekend that there were a new variant had emerged as a result of uh, this you know massive mixing this is actually not the case it's not a new variant it's just that you were, able, you were able to see how it spread if you looked closely enough at the at the virus under a microscope. But it is not a new variant that has emerged. And unfortunately, some media outlets reported that, that, there, that there was a new one. So it's not a tiny virus with a tiny surfboard? 
under the <laughs> microscope. Um, was, there was a strong undercurrent of, oh, you know, young people enjoying themselves. How dare they serve them right here? Um, the Mail had aerial shots of the Reading Festival at the weekend with the headline Camp COVID. Yet, strangely, they didn't do that for Wimbledon. Funny that. This has become an imprimatur, hasn't it? You know, if the wrong kind of people are having a good time, then it serves them right. But if it's the right kind of people, then somehow, well, what can we do? Nothing could happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, there was actually one doctor at Boardmasters or one doctor in the region who said, you know, we were expecting this. Uh, it's okay. This is how we would expect it to be, given all young people have been through and all the festivals and all the fun that they missed as a result of COVID. We're okay with this happening, actually. And I was quite pleased to hear that. And it's also the fact that, you know, most of the attendees are under 30, so they're not going to be double vaccinated. They're only starting to get their second shots now. It's not actually that surprising, really. There is more variant talk as well. Another new variant has supposedly been detected in South Africa, the C.1.2 variant. What do we know about this? It's not yet been declared a variant of concern. Right. So that means that we don't necessarily need to be concerned about it yet. It has certain mutations that might make it more likely to spread. However, it might well not. I mean, Delta is a very, as in the parlance, fit variant. Um, and it's so far it's crushed everything before it. Uh, I think it's far too early to say, I think, at this point, what is going to happen with, with this with this one. But from the early reports I'm seeing, there still seems to be good protection against hospitalisation and death with the C uh, variant, if not uh, with against actual infection. Back to school for a minute. The summer's exam results showed an astonishing and widening gap between state school and private school pupils. Uh, the government's plans for, for catch-up were pitifully in inadequate. And yet that story seems to have completely died. You know, as, as kids get back into education, can you see that resurrecting in the coming weeks? It is going to be increasingly obvious, and it's going to be very obvious in the exam results next year, uh, assuming that exams go ahead as normal. There's going to be a massive drop in performance because the kids are actually going to be sitting exams as opposed to having their teacher-graded assessments, which were far, far higher this year. So there's going to be a lot of angst about how far people have, how far kids have fallen behind. Yes. The thing to bear in mind about this is that it showed just how powerful Rishi Sunak is in the government and the power that he has to say no to very, very pressing calls for more public expenditure. This was a really, you know, this this is something that should have had money spent on it. It's really important, but it had the absolute bare minimum spent on it. And the reason for that was not our useless education secretary, Gavin Williamson, but it was Rishi Sunak saying, no, the money isn't there. And one of the things that we're going to see coming up in the next couple of months or so is the number of different pressures on public spending that are emerging. When you think about the state that this country is in, even COVID aside, we have a lot of pressure over the COP26 summit in November for there to be more spending and proof of Britain's intent on cutting carbon emissions. So more pressure on that. There's big, big problems in mental health, particularly children's mental health, but mental health generally. The courts are in an absolute state, you know, cases years behind. There's the issue of Afghan refugees now and how we're going to pay for that and, and pay for them to be looked after. There's the pressure for the cut in uh, universal credit to be reversed. There's the whole levelling up agenda, which is supposed to be making life much better for poorer areas of Britain. There's the new increase in police numbers that Boris Johnson has promised. 
There's the NHS, which is always in need of money and even more so now because of delayed ops and people waiting longer and longer for treatment as a result of COVID. This is just like a perfect storm of stuff that all needs public money. Where on earth is it going to come from? And you'll see enormous tension and difficulties between Johnson, who just wants to splurge the money and to hell with anything and he doesn't understand economics, against Rishi Sunak saying the money isn't there unless we raise taxes and it's not a conservative thing to raise taxes, so we don't want to do that. And that's the big thing. That's the big, big wrangle coming up ahead of us. There is some exciting uh, kids news from China, though. Children under the age of 18 are going to be only allowed to play online video games for one hour on Fridays, weekends and on holidays. This is from China's video games regulator. State media has called online games spiritual opium. Do we need a video games regulator? Ros, to control the spread of the spiritual opium that is Call of Duty 3 and Castle Wolfenstein or whatever else they're playing. Well, I think actually some some parents might be quietly relieved about this. <laughs> it takes away the constant pressure to police, uh, police screen time, which we all experience. It's certainly very dr- draconian, though. I mean, there there is no doubt that this is a massive intervention in private lives by the Chinese state, but that's what the Chinese state does. And it has the power to do that. And for the moment, it has largely the confidence of its citizens because of the way it's managed to keep COVID under control. So, you know, there's, there's, there's not much uh, any, anyone can, can do about this. And as I say, I think it will be sold as an aid to stressed parents who are trying desperately to keep their kids off these evil video games, but don't have the will. And if the state is doing it for them. Yes, but they should be hotboxing in tents at surfboard festivals instead. <laughs> let's uh, let's move off schools and education. We're going to have to look at Afghanistan. The last flights have left Kabul. Some 140,000 people were airlifted out by the US and the UK, but tens of thousands have been left behind. There is not much left now, except shame for us, really. Parliament returns on the 6th of September next Monday. How do you see this one, again, developing this week? I mean, it's it seems to be all over, but the recriminations. The question, I think, is how much the government wants to be continue, continue to be involved in Afghanistan. There have been strikes on IS targets, and it may well be that those will continue, particularly on the American side. But that really isn't in the spirit of the withdrawal. It's also clear that Boris Johnson would like to try to persuade the Taliban to try and keep IS under control. How he is going to do that, presumably through financial leverage, through ensuring that the Taliban don't have access to international funds, which they will need. The only thing we can do now is try and pressure the Taliban to be less objectionable than and violent and oppressive than they would otherwise be. It's it's not a positive uh, outlook, quite frankly. I, I imagine that the the US will continue to occasionally launch drone strikes in the area, but what we're seeing, of course, from Joe Biden is an increasingly isolationist stance as America it turns away from its foreign commitments and concentrates on problems at home. And I'm not sure that Britain alone has much power to change that. The Guardian says constituency MPs in the UK are trying to get around 7,000 people out uh, with minimal help from the government. The stories are horrific, divided families, uh, people have completely lost contact where, with their, their children, children whose parents have been killed. You know, have, have we just shut the door on the people who are left? There will be some sort of attempts to get them out, but I don't know. I don't know what form those 
those attempts can take. It is clear that there were, as you say, thousands of people whose cases were being raised by MPs, but the system was just, the MOD was just overwhelmed and couldn't respond. And there was no way of dealing with all of them. And the system just just clogged up and stopped. We didn't get out in, enough people out in time. We seem to have done worse in that than France, for example, which has been extricating people over a longer period in anticipation of this withdrawal. We should have been doing that and we should have started doing that quite some time ago. I'm not sure why it wasn't obvious to the government that once the British and Americans left, the Taliban would come in and take their place, but it doesn't seem to have been clear to them that that was what would have happened. Yet, we know that people like you know Arthur Snell were quite clear what would happen when the British and Americans left. So it's an enormously incompetent withdrawal in many ways. I mean, we managed to get a large number of people out, but it was all just so last minute. Uh, it was very depressing to see how many people focused on uh, the former soldier turned animal rescuer Penn Farthing and his dogs and his cats. The army assisted 200 dogs through the airport while human beings were being left behind, uh, including even some of Farthing's own staff. What did you make of this episode, Ros? This was just really dismaying. I mean, <laughs> people find it so much easier, I think, to empathise with the plight of animals. And there's a particular strand in British among the British as well, that has uh, an affinity for dogs and cats and anything involving them must be prioritised. And as Ian Dunt has put it, you know, very succinctly, if they, they, they value the life of a dog above that of a brown human being. And Penn Farthing, of course, is the champion of these dogs and cats. Uh, he has written, I think, two or three books on uh, these, how wonderful they are. He has developed a sort of minor cult following as an ex-soldier and as a you know minor league hero for setting up this animal rescue charity. And in the end, he says he tried to get his staff out as well as the cats and dogs. But in the end, the staff were denied the papers to leave at the airport and it was just the cats and dogs that left. Now, if you're on Penn Farthing's side, you say that it, this didn't make any difference to the overall operation. Uh, it, it didn't. It didn't slow down the the paperwork, which was too too slow anyway. That the dogs and cats travelled in the hold of a private plane. They weren't travelling in RAF planes. But there is no doubt that Penfarthing put a lot of pressure and threatened the Ministry of Defence in order to try and get his animals out of the country. And there really is no way that the MOD should have been giving any time to this. It wasn't a priority. Human beings leaving Afghanistan are more important than dogs. And, you know, laudable though this charity may be, Penn Farthing took a huge risk in setting it up in Afghanistan. Frankly, if anyone could have seen what was going to happen, he should have seen what was going to happen. And yet he too led it, uh, left it to the last minute. And in the end had to, you know, call on assistance to, to get him and his menagerie through. And it was just really dismaying to see people making excuses for what was quite frankly threatening behaviour by Penn Farthing. And, you know, he went on Good Morning Britain, I think, this week, yesterday and said, oh, I was just swearing because I was a bit frustrated. Well, no, he wasn't just doing that. He was actually threatening people and, and promising to make their lives hell. And it, it was a really, really unpleasant episode. And it unfortunately reveals 
something very unpleasant about some people's priorities and their inability to empathise with human beings over dogs. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't just uh, mobilising opinion. It, it was mobilising a kind of sickly sentimentality in the British public and, and going on Good Morning Britain absolutely, you know, sums it up. It's a tabloid approach. It's a Good Morning Britain approach. It is, you know, the, the kind of um, hand-wringing sentimentality that is brought up by animals at all times and, and the idea that at this really shaming moment for the country, I think it just says a lot. And it's not just dogs, even if you're a dog. He was removing cats from Afghanistan. Now, I love cats. You know, I, I adore cats. But for heaven's sake, if there's any creature that can fend for itself, it's a cat. And I'm sorry, there is no justification for having an, effectively an airlift to remove cats from a country. Just to wrap up, we're going to be faced with the issue of integrating Afghan refugees into the UK, into the autumn, and also dealing with migrants coming to the UK from third countries, many of them people who had permission to come here and were not able to get through to the airport. What kind of an issue do you think this is going to be as we go into the autumn? There is going to be a lot of pressure on local authorities in particular to deal with the number of Afghan refugees. I hope that people will step up and help these individuals and not just help them in the short term, but help them to integrate and get jobs and learn English and all the things that if they don't know English already, that is, and all the things that will help them to integrate into society. But this is something that Britain is not very good at doing. We are very suspicious of migrants and we are very suspicious of refugees in particular. And it will take a bit of a change of mindset to accept and to welcome these people. And I'm not convinced that Pretty Patel in particular isn't going to struggle to roll out the welcome mat as has been promised and ensure that these people have the support they need. Because as we know, historically, Britain is very suspicious of migrants and even more suspicious when it feels that they are taking resources that ought to go elsewhere. And as I've just talked about, there are huge pressures on public resources at the moment. I hope the goodwill towards Afghans will continue. I wonder if it will. Still, at least the cats and the dogs got through. That's the end of this week's Start Your Week. Ross Taylor, thanks for getting up early and for joining us. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you found this podcast useful, then why not do us a favour and forward it to three friends? We're asking our listeners to spread the word and just share the links by whatever means possible. You've got it on your app right now, so why not give it a go? And if you're looking for something else to listen to, you could try our recent episodes in which I interview Alan Johnson, the leader that Labour should have had, about his debut novel, a thriller, and where Labour should go next. Or also, you could listen to Doreen Linsky's fascinating interview with the Turkish novelist Elif Shafak. Find them all in your app. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.